Welcome to the Yellow Balloons Podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we take a look at the way Scripture talks about money. We start by discussing the spiritual truth that money cannot buy happiness. Three parables about money help us to see the way God thinks about money is distinct from the world's view. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost money, and the prodigal son invite us into Jesus' view of what it means to be rich in the kingdom of God. Today we're going to continue in our study on how to be rich. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses about riches and money. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, And I say to you, make for yourself friends by unrighteous mammon. When you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in what is much. Therefore... If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. So I just want to notice three things out of this passage. The first is that unrighteous mammon or money, we'll just call it money, finances, assets, possessions, is something different than true riches. Verse 11, if you've not been faithful in money, who would commit to your trust true riches? So it's very interesting if we want to be rich, we have to understand uh, first, that true riches is not money. And we also understand that how we handle money is actually a pathway to true riches. You see here, he says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. If we can't be faithful with just a little bit of earthly money, then apparently we can't be faithful with what is true riches. Very interesting orient, uh, thought. Second thing is that money is uh, either something that uh, we use or something we serve. If we're not using money as a means to true riches, which is not money, then we will be serving it. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the second point is money must be tamed. Uh, And the third point uh, is that people are more important than money. Verse 9, make for yourself friends with unrighteous mammon that they may receive you into an eternal home. Eternal home uh, is their place in heaven. And actually from this parable... 
You're actually using the money to benefit others so that they'll benefit you a long, long time in the future. So this idea that being rich, money is a means to riches, but it's not riches itself. Money is, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's how you handle the money that determines whether you're rich. That's a different way of thinking. These principles here, though, um, actually are found in surveys, as you would expect. And if someone does good scientific research, it always lines up with the Scripture because the Scripture's true, and good research always finds things that are factual. There's a study that was done by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and uh, there's an article here that uh, uh, talks about it. It starts off with, uh, would, with the question, would $25 million make you happy? Now, this uh, study they did was of people who only had net worths exceeding $25 million. I think we can all agree $25 million is a lot of money. The answer to would $25 million make you happy is yes, unless you already have $25 million. And then it doesn't make you happy. Uh, so the survey actually finds out that uh, money brings a lot of problems. The truly wealthy, it says, know that appetites for material indulgence are rarely sated. No yacht is so super, no wine so expensive that it can soothe the soul or guarantee one's children won't grow up to be creeps. <laughs> so here's 10 fears of the super rich. Fear number one, they don't have enough money. A respondent reported he wouldn't feel financially secure until he had $1 billion in the bank. Number two, they can't complain. Someone's complaining about not being able to complain. He said, I, I can't, I've lost the right to complain about anything for, for fear of sounding ungrateful. <laughs> I like that, complaining about being, not being able to complain. Uh, the number thir three is trust fund babies. They're concerned their kids are going to grow up and be brats. Number four. Their friendships are all altered. They feel like people like them just for their money, not for them, not for the real relationship. Number five, they don't like holidays anymore. And why? Feel like milk cows. Everybody just wants to see how much do I get this year. And it's never enough. Uh, anxiety, fear of loss. They have a lot of money. The more you have, the more you can lose. So they spend a lot of angst being afraid they're going to lose what they have. Um, the perception of others. One person said she got a job, she would have trouble being seen as a colleague and not a donor. Don't fit in anymore. Uh, another child one. This child one is, is a large one. You know, how do I raise my kids uh, without in a way that uh, where they're happy and constructive, that's a, that's a difficult thing. Uh, and, this, and this one is entitlement. How do I raise my children without entitlement? Money could mess them up. One person said, 
how do we get our kids to learn to mow the grass when we have a full-time gardener? Uh, number nine is inheritance. Um, and this this uh, respondent says, I've grown up with a father who never wanted to give up control of the business, but kept taunting me with the opportunity to step into his shoes. It's been difficult to feel financially independent when my spouse's parents hold tight control over the children's inheritance. And number 10 is poor people. And I'm not sure exactly what this is, but I think I think what they're saying is they 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 fear being resented, you know, like the Occupy Wall, Wall Street one percent sort of thing. And he says uh, this person says no one has the excuse of lack of money for not being at peace and living in integrity. So kind of resentment that somehow you have something that I uh, deserve. Now. I have experienced that myself. Uh, I had at one point uh, a guy in New York City came up to me and said, do you have any, I'm hungry, do you have any energy bags in your pack? I said, yeah, I think I do. Any energy bars, sorry, in your backpack. Yeah, I think I do. So I'm rummaging through. He says, hey, I tell you what, just to save you trouble, how about if I trade the energy bar that you're going to give me for five bucks? So now he's, he's got something. He's trading up. And he starts negotiating with me, and I, I thought it was kind of funny, you know, because you you already don't have something, and now you're trying to trade what you don't have that's from me for something better. And the guy got really frustrated with me. He, he got angry because I was withholding from him that which he had already possessed. And, you know, um, you don't have to have an immense amount. I, all I had was some energy bars in my bag, bag okay? That's all it took to, to uh, engage with, the, with this particular attitude. So even, even uh, secular research would tell us that money itself uh, doesn't, doesn't really buy happiness. And it is, in fact, a means to an end of some sort. Uh, it, it is interesting, there's another article I found in Forbes magazine by someone named Elizabeth Dunn, and she did a study, and she found that, that money actually can be ha bring happiness if you learn how to use it, So, which is interesting. And she found five things that you can do with money that actually makes it uh, bring happiness. Uh, these are really interesting. Uh, number one is buy experiences instead of buying stuff. And number two is, she called it make, it, make it a treat, which is don't indulge yourself all the time, fast uh, material benefits, and then just treat yourself occasionally. Uh, number, number three, buy time instead of stuff. Use your money to buy time. Number four is pay now, consume later. Buy time. I think what they mean by that is... Um, uh, like more time off or, uh, yeah, use, use your money to give yourself uh, opportunities to go do things other than work or whatever. Uh, number five is invest in other people. So these are the five things. And the interesting thing about that, by experiences, generally speaking, if you're going to do an experience, what, what's going to be included? People. people. You're usually going to experience something with someone. Uh, and fasting is a like a make it a treat. You're actually denying yourself 
You're actually using the money as an instrument to, to deny something. I can have this, but I'm going to deny myself. Uh, the th- number three, buying time. What are you typically going to do with time? Share it with somebody. Pay now, consume later is, again, once you're, the money's actually there as a tool to, for self-denial. This is interesting, isn't it? It's the exact opposite of what most people think of in terms of if I had a lot of money, I would shower myself with all this stuff, which is exactly what makes people miserable. And number five is more direct, invest in other people. Well, that really fits what we're talking about today because, go back to Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll also be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We've said that in verse 11, if you've not been faithful and unrighteous mammon, who will trust, commit to your trust true riches? True riches is something different than money. Money's a means to learn how to have true riches. And money is something that either works for you or you work for it. And then look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. So Jesus in large part here is talking to the Pharisees about a problem that they have. Now the Pharisees were the heroes of the, of the Jewish culture. They were looked up to. They were immensely biblically literate. They understood the law. Their official mantra was to be righteous. And they had a fundamental problem. And the problem was that they were not understanding what the Bible says. They were using it for uh, a, the wrong purpose. Verse 15, he said to them, You, Pharisees, are those who justify yourselves before men. They had the wrong heart about money. Well, this this cool little passage we've talked about here that shows us that money has to be tamed. It's a path to something. It's not an end to itself. And choosing people over money is... is, uh, is what we should what we should focus on is actually buried in a in a passage that includes five parables, and I want to show you that today. I want to show you these five parables are all about money and how to deal with money and what true riches are. So let's go back to the start of this. I actually got onto this because of the uh, cool ser- uh, series that Mike did, looking at different perspectives on the prodigal story. And I started looking at, well, that's cool to do different perspectives. So I'm going to give you another perspective, which is looking at it from the standpoint of money, which is a major theme in five different parables. Go back to chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, complained and they said this man receives sinners and eats with them so he spoke this parable to them now this word uh, receives is an interesting word it's a greek word prosdecami 
And it means to eagerly wait for. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. And let me just uh, show you something in Luke chapter 2. In verse 25, we see this word. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. What was, what was Simeon waiting for? Yeah, the Messiah. How how was he looking for the Messiah? What does it mean he's waiting for the Messiah? He was really eagerly looking forward to it, right? It's something he spent his time focusing on because he was so eager for it to come. Well, that's the same word here, prosdecomai, waiting. He was eager for it to come. So if we go back to Luke chapter 15, what we see here is these Pharisees, were complaining because Jesus actually liked these people. They were sinners. They were, um, and he was, sorry, they were sinners, and he was eating, oh, tax collectors, yeah, so they were traitors, tax collectors and sinners, and he was actually eating with them, which means he was having fellowship with them, and he liked being with them. He was receiving them warmly and, and, and with great welcome. So Jesus answers their complaint, with five parables. The first parable, he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, won't leave the 99, go out into the wilderness, find the one that's lost when he's found it, puts it on his shoulders, he's happy. He calls together his friends and neighbors, says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. So how many sheep does he have? hundred. How many does he lose? One. What percent of his assets is at risk? 1%, okay? Now, if you have 1% of your assets that that you lose, does it bother you? 1% is not very much. I mean, it's not very much in terms of percent. Do you still pick up dimes off the ground? That's way less than 1%. I know some people don't pick up pennies anymore. I always pick up pennies, just out of principle. Yeah, no, just put them in a jar at home, but uh, but it's just out of principle. That's, uh, yeah, because even if even though it's only one percent of our assets, we still care about these. And in verse seven, he says, "I say to you, likewise, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons." So, what's the point? You care about your one percent of your assets. Is he complaining that you care about one percent of your assets? No, of course not. But what he says is, I care about these sinners just like you care about your sheep. I think of people just like you think about money, you lovers of money. Now, if you're a shepherd, you're probably a male. So then the question is, well, does this just apply to males? Well, no, it doesn't. Verse 8, what woman having silver coins... She loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully till she finds it. She finds it. Same thing. What did the guy do when he found his sheep? Called his friends. Yeah, he called his friends and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Well, what she does when she finds the coin is she calls her friends and says, rejoice with me. Could it be a text or a call? Either one, yes. Facebook. 
Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this time, it's 10% of her, of her assets, of her savings. Okay, which is more significant. But you get the same behavior, which is I've lost something. It's valuable to me. And I want to find it. And it's not just her. It's her friends. They're glad for her, too. Because losing assets is something we don't like to do. And Jesus has the same thing. I care about these these people as much as you care about your money, Pharisees. And then he goes to a third story, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So first it's, it's uh, assets uh, of the sheep, then assets in the house. And now we're going to go to enterprise. Okay, God cares about enterprises too because in this time and age, companies were the family business. And I'm told that if you were in a family and that family business was um, prospering, in other words, it had more than just one person and, and had, a, had something going on, which in Israel is typical because it's private property and that property was deeded to the family in perpetuity. Um, if you're the oldest son, you got the double blessing, which means you got to be the CEO of the family when you got into your 50s or so. You were training to become the CEO of the family all this time. And the whole family is working together to create a family benefit, family enterprise. So if the younger son comes and says, sell some of what you have, which remember you're in a situation where you can sell, but always with redemptions, properties considered sacred. You're doing this for the whole family. Then this guy comes and says, I want my part split off. That just doesn't happen. You're not going to do that. So Jesus is making a, a really a hyperbole here of something I don't think would ever they would ever see. I want you to partition the family business so I can take mine off and do what I want to do. It's a very wicked thing in the culture. But he says, um, so he does, he does it. And he goes and wastes his possessions with prodigal living, ends up in the pigsty. And then comes home, and of course then the older brother, the one who would have been the CEO, and what has happened when they partition the, the assets, what has happened to the older brother? His company size has been shrunk, right, of what he's going to, and he's actually endangered the family with this behavior. And so he comes home, and, and, he, and he, uh, this father welcomes him gladly, and he says to the older son in verse 31, Son, you're always with me, and all I have is yours. All I have is yours. The younger son was restored his fellowship, but he was not restored his ownership. He was not restored his inheritance. He was, he was restored the fellowship with the father. Son, you're always with me. All I have is yours. It's right that we are merry and glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. And again, I think what God's showing here is I care more about the principles in the business, the owner of the business, than I do the business itself. He was dead and is alive again. It was lost and is found. Go back to chapter 15, verse 6. 
Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. Look at the parable of the coins in verse 9. She found it. She calls her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I found that which I lost. Our son was lost and is found. And he parallels it in the prodigal uh, story with, He was dead and is made alive. Now, of course, these are the same words that he uses in Romans 6 when he says, We have been... Buried in death with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life on a daily basis. So this this is a central theme of the Bible, lost, found, dead, alive. And again, he's saying, I care about the people more than I do the money. The money is just a means to an end. And the means is teaching how to interact with people. He then goes and uh, turns to the disciples. So he's been talking to these lovers of money, these Pharisees, to make the point people matter more than money. People matter more than possessions. People matter more than the enterprise. And even though there's consequences associated with money, the fellowship of the relationship is actually more important to me. So I think in the terms of the Pharisees, the Pharisees had Israel. They had the scriptures. They had immense blessings. And he could say to them, all I have is yours if you'll take it. But what did the oldest son benefit from? He he owned everything his father had. How much did he benefit from it? None. Because his complaint was what? You never gave me a fatted calf. We wonder if he ever asked for one. More than likely, he could have had a fatted calf any time he wanted to. So I think he's telling the Pharisees here, you love money so much that you're you're completely missing the inheritance you have. And you're spending your time complaining about these sinners who I also love. And you're missing out completely on what you could be having. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowblooms.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.